This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. You don't need to have a poet at a presidential inauguration. Before today, there have only been five of them. First, Robert Frost for JFK. Then Maya Angelou for Bill Clinton. The last time there was an inaugural poet was back in 2013. Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, America, one today. Richard Blanco was, at the time, the youngest inaugural poet, the first Latinx inaugural poet, the first gay inaugural poet. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, peeking over the Smokies, greeting the faces of the Great Lakes, spreading a simple truth across the Great Plains, then charging across the Rockies. When you watch video from Obama's inauguration, when Richard starts reading, he's got this little smile on his face. Like, how'd I get here? It's still a little bit of a mystery to me. (laughs) Nearly a decade later, Richard is still wondering... I just got a call. I was driving home to Maine from, actually from New York, and I just got a call, which I thought was a crank call. Um, I didn't quite understand what they were trying to explain to me until the, the, the person said, no, like Robert Frost and Maya Angelou. So I was like, oh, okay. But anyway, I I pulled over the side of the road and, and Googled the person that I called, and sure enough, it was the presidential inaugural committee. Richard's not sure why he was chosen. I've met with the president since then several times, and I've never quite dared to ask him exactly. (laughs) I prefer my romantic version of, you know, him sitting in the Oval Office and absorbed in my poetry and (laughs) canceling all his meetings with Putin or whatnot. (laughs) He's like, I have seven almonds and a Richard Blanco book. That's my evening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I know he picked me personally. (laughs) That that much I know. One Today was made into a children's book after its inaugural debut. I still read it to my daughter every now and again when she lets me. It celebrates an America we know, 
an America bustling with trucks on the highway and honking cabs and squeaking playground swings. An America that greets the day in a variety of different languages, but is tied together by one sky and one ground underneath our feet. That overall message of unity in one today, I've been thinking about it a lot over the last few days because it's such a powerful and appealing message. And at the same time, that unity seems harder than ever to achieve. It made me want to ask you, like, if you were going to read the inaugural poem this year, would your message change? Um, somewhat. Um, <laughs> so that's a great question, Mary. I think that poem is already making a statement as like, we're not really one. We we need to check ourselves. We need to think about what this what this this charge is, what this great experiment is. So that means really going back to the drawing table and seeing what what went wrong, right? Where has this gone awry? How did we end up here? Today on the show, a new administration is beginning. And after everything that's happened over the last four years, especially the last few days, it's hard to know what to say. But that's why we have poets. It turns out Richard Blanco didn't write just one inaugural poem. He wrote three of them. The words he didn't read that day, they might resonate even more strongly now. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Something I didn't know until I was preparing for this interview is that you actually wrote three potential poems for Obama's inauguration, and the president's team chose one today. Yeah, three poems. They asked me to write three poems. I'm not exactly sure why. I think they were running a little behind because, again, there's another budgetary crisis. So I suspect, <laughs> this is just me and my poetic fun mind, but I suspect, let's let's ask him for three because we don't have time if the one he sends doesn't really work for us. <laughs> there's not time to write a new one. So, uh, But it was interesting to have, the assignment was wonderful to have three of those poems. Uh, made me think about, you know, different things. Each of Richard's three poems revolved around a different idea. One today, the poem he ended up reading, focused on things that unite us. Mother Country was about Richard's actual mother and her deep attachment to the United States. But the first poem Richard gave the White House, he called it What We Know of Country. It was darker. The first poem was an idea I always sort of had in my mind and thinking about how one's relationship with one's country, with one's nation is kind of there's an analogy there to sort of a romantic relationship or a marriage where you begin with this kind of innocence and infatuation and then you realize the S will be cheated on you and, <laughs> you know, you kind of grow into a mature love and understanding um, with your country. So it was more of an idea poem. I asked Richard to read me a bit of this poem. 
In the years since he first composed it, he's renamed it. Now it's called What I Know of Country. What I Know of Country. Those picture books from grade school days, pilgrims in tall hats, their gold buckle shoes I wanted so badly. White-wigged men standing in velvet-curtained rooms, holding feathers in their hands, inked words buzzing off the page into my heart's ear, life, liberty, happiness, for we, the people, singing of shining seas crossed the spacious skies of a God-blessed land, when a song and a book were all I knew of country. From here, the poem evolves. Richard acknowledges that the reality of America is quite a bit more messy, less idealistic than what he thought of as a kid. For that reason, Richard himself has said what we know of country is a braver poem than one today. It is a bit braver. It's a little it's a little more in your face, so to speak, because it acknowledges the, uh, perhaps a little more of a complexity um, that we have with, with, with our country. And I think, um, so yeah, it takes us through the stages of like, for example, I'm, I'm thinking about like, it begins with like when you're a little kid, you know, and you're like, you're learning about this great country and liberty and justice for all and all these great ideals. And you believe all that. And especially as an immigrant kid, you know, it's just the idea that those, that meant so much to me. Right. Like, and you're sort of enamored in this sort of like when we meet somebody, you know, um, you're like just infatuated, enamored, discovering this person, discovering the, the beauty of this person. And then slowly, <laughs> the marriage gets a little more difficult. And so thinking about, um, you know, I, you know, high school, college, when you start learning some of the real history of the United States and that we're not, you know, we're, we're certainly not, uh, not innocent, um, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of blood on our hands. And, and, and then there was a period in my life where I just got really angry at America. I was like, how could you do this to me? I think that's one of those line, the lines in the poem. How could you? The house began to creak, fall apart around me, alone for years, waiting at the kitchen table, the last to know, asking my reflection in the window, how could you, America? With no answer, for all I knew of country was my hurt and my rage. It felt like I was cheated on. Like that's not what you were supposed to, be, who you were supposed to be, and then and then sort of growing out of that too, and realizing the United States is not the only country that's had a little bit of a tainted history. I finally started having a reckoning with myself in this country. I said, "Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of problems here, um, but let's do something about it." And then also, you know, hey, we all mess up, right? Like, but sticking through it. But home was home. I dusted off the secrets, cleaned up the lies, nailed the creaky floors down, set a fire and sat with history books I'd never opened, listened to songs I'd never played, pulled out the old map from a dark drawer, redrew it with more colors, less lines. I stoked the fire, burning on until finally, okay, nothing's perfect. I understand. I forgive you, I said. And forgiveness became my country. Oh, man. I would have loved to hear that at the inauguration. (laughs) (laughs) What a different vibe, though. What a different vibe. I wondered in some ways if that poem 
is the poem you're thinking about more now? Like being at that moment where you're saying to America, like, we got to talk. Yeah, you're right. That could be very much the poem of we need to talk. And I think that's what's got us here, um, gotten us here. We haven't been talking. We haven't been seeing each other. Yeah, we've kind of just been in this fight, so to speak, you know, this uh, growing fight. And it's in a way it's coming to a head, right? Like it's finally we're seeing what miscommunication or lack of communication, just like in a relationship, how destructive that can be when we're not really talking to each other. A miscommunication, and I think in the ways that we've also objectified each other, um, that we've just become, you know, a blue state or a red state, as if we're not human beings anymore. Um, and we know that 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 wasn't the, just the last four years. The last four years certainly ramped that up a three thousand percent. But it was coming. It was coming. Uh, it's been there. Um, but that's fine too. I, I I feel like that's important. I think it's you know how else are you going to get to that other love? How else are you going to get to that better relationship if you don't face the skeletons in the closet? And like the poem says, we need to talk. I love the way that poem ends. It's like, <laughs> right? It's like very like <laughs> y'all. We need to talk, y'all. You know, <laughs> this isn't not. That's like the phrase that I feel like. If you're in a relationship, you're like, oh, uh. <laughs> right, right, like, <laughs> now it's serious. Now it's serious. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've said that early on in your career, you tried to avoid politics. And that was partially because you grew up as a Cuban exile in Miami. And you were aware of how polarizing politics could be. I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit. Sure, I, that's exactly right. And it's, uh, uh, you know, just growing up around so much rhetoric, but also realizing, you know, in, in the history books, in, in the class, you'd read one thing and then you'd get home or the community would be another thing. Like, for example, as we all know, historically, for Cubans, exiles in general, not so much probably today, but, you know, JFK, John Kennedy was, you know, a traitor to them. It was and That's why Cubans turned Republican, like, because of the Bay of Pigs. And then you read in the history books that, you know, he's this great hero. I'm like, okay, I'm in, like, third grade or fourth grade or some whatever. Um, and the idea that um, who's telling the truth and where is the truth and what is perspective? Well, it sounds like since you were very little, you understood that there were multiple narratives to being an American. And you've also said how television kind of fed into your understanding of the country and, and your community and your place in it when you were very young because you just grew up watching like the Brady Bunch, watching the Six Million Dollar Man and sort of seeing not you, but like the story America was telling about itself. Yeah, certainly. Um, um, very much so, particularly in Miami, which is a very a uh, unique place, to say the least, to grow up in. As we like to say in Miami, we love living there because it's so close to the United States. <laughs> so you're realizing, like, and it's, and it's, it's so I, I, like you said, I knew there were multiple narratives. So here I am in a classroom where 98% of the kids in my classroom are exactly like me, with parents just like mine, stories similar as mine. And the kids that got picked on in my class were weird kids with names like Brian. <laughs> Um, kids with that sort of like white American identity. Yeah. And then they were, you know, they were picked on. They were scapegoats. Their, their kids were cruel. Um, 
By the same token, I'm, I can't see that other America that I'm supposed to love and, and, and falling in love with. So I, the only way I could contextualize America, because everything around me was not what was on TV, the way I contextualized a lot of that was through TV. Um, and that's in that poem, right, what I know of country too, right? And I thought there was Brady Bunches everywhere. I thought once you left Miami, that was it. There was nothing but Brady Bunches everywhere. And I wanted that life too, right? And so I, I describe it. And then I don't have a real Cuba either. I mean, Miami was Cuban, but it wasn't Cuba either. So I describe that, multi, like you're saying, multiple narratives of also the imagination. I always describe it as living between two real imagined stories. One is the story of Cuba, this place we came from, this, 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 you know, suppose it paradise in some ways. Also, all this turmoil that is my history that I knew nothing about. And then the other real imagined narrative was this America that we weren't quite there yet either, right? And yeah, that that is very true. Multiple narratives. Learned it, learned that very early age and and contradictions and yearnings and things that weren't very clear cut and um, sort of neat lines. Everything was a blur. And isn't that where art lives, right? In the gray area, right? It's 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 in that space where I think I've always found truth. I think it's interesting that in some of your poetry, you tap into the idea that President Trump used those narratives that we're also familiar with, those television tropes, Brady Bunch, Six Million Dollar Man, and made the idea that that was somehow the real America. And part of the reason you've talked about why that touches so many people is we all grew up watching that same story play out yeah and it's interesting and so here's we're talking about how poems teach me something or i learned something and so in this in in the new book i think you might be referring to the poem which is a play on which is a play on trump it's the poem's title is let's remake america great and and so in this poem i start critiquing that and realizing that that is actually a, a a fantasy that that it wasn't real and not only that that it was kind of a, a dangerous fantasy america was never that great let's audition only straight boys like opie who carry slingshots and fishing poles, catch crickets and frogs, who don't play patty cakes with girls or grow up to marry a man like I did. Let's keep gay characters in the closet for the camera again. Keep Miss Hathaway in skirt suits with cropped hair and single at 40, but keep her mad crush on Jethro again. Keep Uncle Arthur and his floral print ascots with his hand on his hip, dishing out campy gossip, but keep him acting like a true ladies' man again. Let's remake America as great as it never really was. Take two, quiet on the set. I mean, I'm I'm glad you talked about let's remake America great again, because... When I've heard you talk about that poem, it struck me as very true what it was saying, but at the same time, I didn't know how to feel about it because it made me feel like making some kind of clean break with Trumpism, which is, I think, what a lot of people might want to do, 
might not be possible because some of the ideas of the last four years are baked into our culture. And so it's just not that easy. Yeah, that's a great that's a great verb. You're a poet yourself, baked into our country. Yeah, and I think I think you know I, the poem itself is supposed to make you question that, right? Because the thing is that narratives can be used positively or negatively. You know, let's take Obama's narrative for example, the idea of hope of a better tomorrow, of of, of a ideal living an ideal life that that means justice and but about working together and about you know kind of achieving that together and about that we're not there yet versus the narrative of something we lost and we lost because it's somebody else's fault and that that ideal that is that american ideal that american dream is something that was stolen right so i think the narrative is there i think it's it's worth who does not want to have a safe prosperous just life but how you how you deliver that narrative can be again very it can be constructive or it can be very destructive. And who controls the narrative or how you change the narrative can make all the difference. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you're driving, cooking, or doing laundry... Progressive knows the podcasts you listen to go best when they're bundled with another activity. Much like how their progressive home and auto policies go best when they're bundled. Having these two policies together makes taking care of your insurance easier. And it could help you save, too. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. That's a whole lot of savings and protection for your favorite podcast listening activities, like going on a road trip, cooking dinner, or even hitting the home gym. Yep, your home and your car are even easier to protect when you bundle your insurance together. Find your perfect combo. Get a home and car insurance quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. As Richard and I spoke, I couldn't stop thinking about that analogy he uses in What I Know of Country, about how learning to love a country is a lot like trying to figure out how to make a marriage work. Because we all know that statistic, that half of marriages end in divorce. So I asked him, does he see divorce from his country as ever on the table? I've thought about that, um, especially uh, in this last election. I just thought, oh, God, maybe it's time for a villa in southern Spain <laughs> or to return to my roots. Um, and I think it's important and healthy uh, to actually keep divorce in in some ways as an option, right? Um, I think in my own personal relationship, I didn't I didn't real I didn't grow enough until I gave myself permission to leave. Um, 
And uh, I hope Mark is not hearing this podcast. <laughs> but um, uh, but here's the thing. I think, yes, in, in terms of that analogy, there is a time to divorce. But I don't see it as like, you know, just abandoning the country, but rather a reset point. Right. Because in the end, we can divorce one idea. Right. But we also ultimately go on to find love in another way, in another context. Right. And so that's that's how I kind of finished mapping that out for myself. It's like, you know what? I'm done. I gotta say, there's there's times where I've been. I'm done here. Like, the, and I think I think that divorce means a radical re-understanding of oneself and what you have to give and your relationship, how that can change with the country. Um, but let's talk about a divorce from the old, right? From let's maybe divorce from this idea, like like we we're just talking there about, you know, how do. We, how do we divorce ourselves from that, you know, that mythic, you know, perfect America on television? Well, maybe we need to rethink what that has been doing to our relationship. You know, my therapist told me one time, um, you don't need to know that it's why it's exactly it's not working. You just need to know that it's not working and move on. And maybe that's part of this conversation, too. It's like we keep on trying to maybe rehash ideas or methods or conversations that haven't worked and again maybe it's about again not <laughs> abandoning one's country but thinking about what what that radical shift is but i think that's interesting the idea that we may be getting stuck on agreeing about how we got here versus agreeing we need to start over Right. I'll never forget that, that that line from my therapist. It was like, you don't, I mean, not that you should leave it unexamined, right? Examine it. But there comes a point where you can't find that final answer. And you just have to say this, whatever I'm doing right now, this relationship is not working and I need to move on. And um, need to try something new and try something new. You know, at the time you were selected to read at President Obama's inauguration, you were the youngest inaugural poet ever. Is that right? Youngest, first gay, first um, first openly gay. I don't know why they put in openly gay. I guess, I don't know, if other poets were closetedly <laughs> gay. <laughs> Covering the bases. If I'm not openly gay by now, front page of the New York Times sure did it. What a way to come out. Uh, and first Latino, uh, first Latinx. And you were, you were what, like you were 40-something, right? I was 44, yeah. I'm struck by this time, the poet Amanda Gorman, I think she's 22. She's so young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's really, she'd be <laughs> by half, <laughs> almost by exactly half. That's right. I heard she was in touch with you. Uh, yeah, we've, uh, she's, uh, we got to connect. Um, I got to say, I, she's an ace. Uh, I mean, just an amazing, amazing poet, amazing human being, amazing spirit. Um, yeah, what did you want her to know? Um, you know, mostly what a beautiful experience this was going to be because on the surface it feels so terrifying and how it can feel like overwhelming. Like in my case, I had to read in front of a million people, hmm. and, you know, what do you do with that? How do you, you know? And, and so just to really let her know that it's an absolute gorgeous once in a lifetime experience and to just, that's, that was my advice to just embrace it all take it all in and enjoy every second. But yeah, Amanda, I got to say, and I can't be any more pleased with their choice. This this country right now, they need they need a, vo a young voice because if anything um, that concerns me is what are our children um, thinking about these moments in these past, I don't want to say just four years, but it's just, it's been, it's been building up and we need to think about, you know, as they say, 
I think it was Gandhi or, or Einstein that said something like, you can't solve a problem with the same paradigm that created it, kind of, so to speak. Um, mm. And I think we need the input of our youth to help us, uh, to help us <laughs> through this mess we've created. <laughs> Richard Blanco, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure and so meaningful and so um, enlightening. Thank you, Mary. Richard Blanco was the poet for Barack Obama's 2012 inauguration. And that is the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, and Mary Wilson, along with Franny Kelly. Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict supervise The Lot of Us. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll see you back in this feed tomorrow. <laughs> 